you guys hopefully know by now that um, we've just jumped into this new series over the past month of, of Welcome Holy Spirit. Sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> That'll hinder me this morning. And, and Chris and Keith have um, led us into this exploration in the first couple of weeks of, of who the Holy Spirit is. And they've really challenged our understanding of him, you know, because we can kind of think we've got this whole thing neatly boxed up. But, uh, but they really pushed um, and, and challenged us on, on who the Holy Spirit was. They dispelled some of the myths around him. And they really helped to establish the Holy Spirit as an equal figure of the triune Godhead. And all of this helped to further embed our understanding of the ways in which the Holy Spirit exists and, and how he expresses himself in the everyday life of believers. And then last week, Alan told, I thought it was great, I don't know what he was talking about, but he, he taught us that the Holy Spirit was person, he was presence, and he was power. And his presence in us is the immediacy of God in our lives. I love that. That's the reality that God is with us. And, uh, and his presence um, demonstrates through his power what radical and sacrificial love really looks like. And then as individuals, we're all on our own journey on that, aren't we? Is to discover um, what the implications are for the presence of God in our lives. And so then we, uh, we looked a little bit more last week as well of what it is to actually live a life in the Spirit. You see, when we walk in the Spirit, he is the source of life in the spirit, which is kind of a given. But we were reminded that it was actually through the work of the cross and the continuing work of the spirit in our lives that we find a solution to the sin and the flesh that can sometimes take over. And it's only in our willing and submitted partnership with him that we become new creations who have the authority and the help to deal with that persistent work of sin. We are dead to sin but alive in Christ. Do you remember that from last week? We have been crucified with him and it's no longer us who live but he who lives in us, okay? And this is what we call spiritual formation and it's the process by which God renews his image in us and it's a continual process. It's not something that we just do when we get saved and you know everything's fine and then we just as we talked about last week, be good living. It's a continual process that happens and, uh, and, and we have to engage in that if we want to look more like Jesus. And all of this reminds me of Jesus's beautiful teaching in John 15 in verses four to five. Here we go. Yes. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, what's really interesting about this passage is that Jesus instructs his disciples to abide for the purpose of bearing fruit, okay? And that's where we're, we're sort of launching into this morning, all right? Um, when we let our roots go deep down into Jesus, we naturally overflow with the kind of the fruit that Jesus wants to show the world. And I wonder if Paul had this in mind when he is writing our, our passage this morning. It's in Galatians 5. And, um, and I wonder if he just, he just had this teaching of Jesus in mind when he wrote this passage. So I, I always like to give you a bit of context because I think it helps understand um, in a little bit more depth of uh, what, what he's trying to get at. So Paul had been the one to preach 
to the people in Galatia and then help establish the church there, okay? And the, the church makeup, it was mainly Gentile. That's like non-Jewish believers um, that, was, that made up the church. And he was really helping to... to um, get some like really good teaching in there to help establish them um, so that they wouldn't really be caught up in kind of some of the baggage that perhaps some of the Jewish believers had, which was um, to keep the law, okay? That was a big thing that they had. If you just live and you keep the law, like a lot of the, the Mosaic laws that, that Moses imparted to people in the Old Testament, then you'd be okay. And Paul really wanted to kind of tackle that head on, okay? And so he, he, he taught there for a long time and he helped to establish and embed this. But when he did move on to another church, then some Jewish believers did come in and began to teach that actually you needed to keep the law and you needed to get circumcised. That was kind of costly, wasn't it? Um, and, and, and they believed that that was the way that you would become holy and that you would become marked out and set apart for God. And, and the, this group of Jews that moved into the church in Galatia, they were really introducing this theology into the church that was very subtle, really, really subtle, but it was very deceptive because it led them to believe that they had to do more, okay? They had to do more to maintain their salvation, um, which was keep the laws and get circumcised. Um, and what Paul's really doing here in the book of Galatians is he's correcting these beliefs by reminding them of the role of the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification, of becoming holier, right? And he says this in verse 4 of chapter 5. He says, you who were trying to be justified by the law, you've been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. And what he's really essentially saying is, if the law had been enough to make us more like Jesus then the spiritual purpose of the cross was, was null and void. The cross didn't really attain and obtain anything. And if the church in Galatia were going to be intent upon pursuing righteousness through the law, then they were really making the decision to alienate themselves from Jesus and they missed the whole point of the radical grace that he was displaying. And where Paul is going then in the book of Galatians is to lead the whole church to the conclusion that it's only the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that's going to complete the process of making us more like Jesus. The law was never designed to do that, okay? We'll look at that a wee bit more later. So does that give you a kind of context uh, as to where we're going? And so before Paul explains what a life of the Spirit is, he lays out really clearly and, and very plainly what a life of the Spirit isn't, okay? So that's where we're going to go first of all this morning. He says, um, the acts of the flesh, right, Johnny, you may go for it there. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. That's not a word you say every day. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. <laughs> and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's kind of stark, isn't it? He uh, uses this word flesh, and in the Greek, it's this word sarks. This is not playing ball with me at all, Johnny. Um, and in the concept of flesh that Paul is talking about here, it's like the earthly nature of man. We touched on this before. It's the earthly nature of man that is separate from divine influence. And because it is separate, it is prone to sin and, and opposed to God, right? That's what we all have within each of us. That is our flesh. And Boyce, when he talks about sin, he says that when Paul speaks of sarks, it came to mean man as a fallen being whose desires, even at best, even at best, 
mitigate from sin and are stained by it. Okay, And so as we honestly reflect upon this list and this passage that Paul has set out for us here, um, we have to, I felt this challenge, right? We have to refuse as the church, right? As the bride of Christ, we have to refuse to keep making excuses for ourselves when these things play out in our lives. And we have to be so careful that we don't look for the speck in somebody else's eye and forget about the log that's in our own, right? Because I don't believe that Paul ever wrote this for us to use it as a weapon, I think this passage is to be exclusively self-reflected upon, okay? Paul just does, that was never his intention that we beat people (laughs) with this passage, okay? He's saying, let these verses be a gauge by which we measure ourselves. And that's the heart, I suppose, that I want to bring to this this morning, okay? So we're going to categorize these sins, and I'm going to give you a very brief kind of understanding of, hopefully, of what they all are. So the first few sins are broken up into this category of sensual sins, right? Sexual immorality. I gotta say it, I really felt the conviction of this really strongly all week. That is any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. We gotta teach our kids this. It's so um, blurry out there. It's so gray out there, but we, you know, as the church, we gotta be clear on this, all right? And it is any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Then impurity is when that leads to our thoughts and our actions and our words, okay? So uncleanness and that kind of sexual context with our thoughts and with the way that we behave and with the words that we say. And then debauchery. Well, debauchery, just in case you didn't know, is, is like this really socially flaunting your sexual indulgence, right? That's what debauchery is. Kind of like this public excess of hedonism. And hedonism is just... Um, Remember that song years ago, for those of you who are middle-aged? Just because it feels good, it doesn't make it right. That's what hedonism is. If it feels good to you, just get on and do it. doesn't matter about the consequences, right? And so debauchery is like when we're just flaunting that to the world. And Paul's really calling that out. And he's saying, you know what? If you do that, you're living in the flesh, okay? We know as people who have maybe grown up in the church, these are kind of fairly obvious, okay? And when they play out in our lives, they do wreak havoc. There's kind of really no other way to say that. Um, but, but these sins, uh, I feel they're kind of, they're counterfeit of love among people, okay? Do you remember we talked about that last week? It's the enemy who deals, he kind of copies what God has because it's beautiful and it's good and he changes it into a counterfeit. And this is a counterfeit of love among people when these acts of the flesh play out in our lives. They are a false representation of love with extremely destructive repercussions. And we are denying ourselves and we're denying other people the expression of pure, beautiful kingdom love when these acts of the flesh play out. Then we get to religious sins, and religious sins in that list that Paul gave us, um, it's idolatry, and and of course that's worshipping anything else but God. But it doesn't necessarily mean a statue in your home that you worship, it can also be the affection of our heart. What we are giving most of our time and our energy and our affection to can also become an idol for us. And Paul is, is asking us here to measure this and be careful with this and guard our heart with this. And then the next one is witchcraft, and and sometimes some translations of the Bible say sorcery, so I'm going to kind of give you both angles of that, okay? Sorcery, actually, would you believe it, is the use of drugs? (laughs) It's not what we think it is. It's the use of drugs to change our state of mind, and then witchcraft is when we invoke supernatural powers other than God for a purpose. 
these are works of the flesh that are counterfeit of love to God, okay? So while the first one was about people, this one's about a counterfeit love towards God. And these, um, these works, when we participate in them, we are denying God our true worship and has the one who is higher than any other kind of spiritual influence. And we, we are opening ourselves up to really unhealthy influences when we participate in these religious sins. So as a church, yeah, we can say, right, okay, I can see that. Um, and, and we can point those out as fairly obvious, but let's look at this next list, okay? These next ones are interpersonal sins. Hatred. That is the volatile dislike of people or groups of people. Discord. What about discord? When we stir up division within the church, that's an act of the flesh. When we stir up division. What about jealousy within the church? Come on, nobody can sit here and tell me you haven't been jealous of somebody else. When we're jealous, we are really unable to be happy for somebody else's success. That's an act of the flesh. Fits of rage. What happened before you left the house this morning? Anybody have an uncontrolled outburst of emotion? What about selfish ambition? Divisions that happen when we seek our own gain above the gain of others. Dissensions, that's when we break unity. Oh, this one's so, this one really gets me. When we break unity without good cause. Happens in the church all the time, doesn't it? What about factions when we unjustly take sides within these divisions? Envy when we're discontent with what we have. These examples that Paul gives us, they're, they're classic of how we can mistreat one another within church, aren't they? And, and it shows you, I actually think it shows you how much God cares about our treatment of people. And they're really subtle opposites of love that do nothing but wound and cause destruction within the church. Didn't Jesus remind us that the world would know that we were his followers by the way that we love one another? Didn't he? And, and, and aren't we taught further on in the New Testament to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility to consider others better than ourselves? And then we get to the social sins, which again, a lot of us can say, well, yeah, you know, that's fairly obvious. Drunkenness, do I need to go to that one? It's consumption of too much alcohol and orgies. Out of control sexual behavior that just is not good for anybody, okay? And, and, and those things, they are just really, as I look at them, I think they're attempts to fill the void that only God can fill in our lives, right? They're attempts by this broken world to, to um, fill that space that only his love is going to be able to come into and, and to transform us. And Paul says, he says, this isn't an exhaustive list, but I think that we can conclude that as we see it, all of these works on the flesh laid out, that they are humanity's wounded and broken search for the fulfillment that only the agape love of God can give. And I'll explain more about the agape love in a moment, but even more than this list, because he says that it's not exhaustive, as I've read this, I kind of have got the impression that a life lived in the flesh within the church context is one rooted in this ideology that Paul was trying to boot out of the church in Galatia, um, that we can earn our salvation through works, okay? And, I, you know, <laughs> it just it results in this really putrid, off-putting, religious kind of um, thinking, and it's a life that's based upon striving and incessant labor and endeavor, and it doesn't work. 
It doesn't transform the world. It doesn't change anything. But Paul really cleverly, you got to admire the way he writes, he flips, he puts that whole list out there and then he flips it over, right? And he, he contrasts what a life then lived in the Spirit looks like as one that produces the fruit of the Spirit, which is the reality of Jesus on display in us, okay? And, and it's only the inner influence of the Spirit that brings our flesh under control because the outer influence of the law was never going to be enough to be able to do that, all right? So... Sorry, my pages are winning this morning. Paul has just finished saying that a life lived in the Spirit is not these works on display. And he says this in verse 21. He says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so if these obvious sins and and maybe some of those more subtle sins um, define our lifestyle and our regular practices, then Paul is saying, you know what? I'm giving you a warning and we need to hate it, Okay. If we continue to live like we know best, like, you know, what we're doing now, it's, you know, we're getting on rightly. (laughs) Don't challenge me. I don't want to change anything about the way I'm doing life. I'm happy and content in my little Christian bubble. Then (laughs) we're remaining impervious to the work of the Spirit and the invitation that, that we get to live this life to the full opportunity. And Paul is saying that we're really treading on very unsteady ground. This is the trap of the flesh, I feel, as I've prepared this this morning. I feel like it's like a, it's really like a, something's trying to grab us around the ankle and hold us back if that's the way we choose to live. And personally, what I have felt really, really challenged as I've pushed into this passage more is if I personally feel in any way in my life um, that, that my life can show the world what Jesus looks like just by striving, right, just by striving and by being good living, like we talked about last week, then maybe a part of me still believes that my self-righteousness is enough. And maybe a part of me still believes that that self-righteousness is more effective than the Holy Spirit at work in me. Like, that really, like, that cut me. <laughs> that cut me to the bone when I thought about that. Am I, like, inadvertently aligning myself with this misguided belief that, that, that I don't actually need the Holy Spirit? You see, when we live in that kind of comfortable, you know, middle-class Christian lull, we end up being slaves to it because self-merit will never change the world. It's not, it's not enough. And Jesus, he never really called the disciples to the place where they were like doing character development. You know, that wasn't kind of his um, ministry tagline. But he called them close. He called them into relationship. And as a result of that relationship, their character changed So can you see the difference there? Our goal isn't holiness independent of God. Our goal is intimacy. Holiness then rises up and exists in this equilibrium with our level of intimacy with the Spirit, okay? And it requires discipline, and it requires pursuit, and it requires thirsting. But what I I think Paul is really trying to drum into the church in Galatia, and and then anybody who reads it, so that's us as well, that when we walk in the Spirit, we are more open to the leading of the Spirit, and we pattern our lives after the influence of Jesus. And that's when we show him what what the world, what he's really, really like. So hopefully you have a clearer understanding about what life in the flesh is like. So let's see what Paul says about a life in the spirit. He's, you'll know this passage well. And would you, could you do me a favor? If this is of interest to you, I don't have time to do it this morning, but would you read it in the message? Because it's beautiful. 
it's so good, it's so refreshing. And it, um, just sometime over the week, if you wanted to, it's, it's lovely. It's, he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. You see, in this passage, I think he just says, this is what it's meant to look like. This is how it's supposed to work. And the Greek word for fruit here is this word karpos. And um, <clears throat> it's important that you know that that's a singular thing. And so why we have a list with all of these um, fruit of the spirit, it's actually, it's like, it's singular, okay? You don't just get peace and not love, okay? And you don't just get forbearance and not kindness. You get it all together, okay? But this word, it means deed or action or result. So Paul is, he's essentially saying that the result or the consequence of time spent with the Holy Spirit is all of these attributes listed above becoming on display for others to see as we do life, okay? And the, and the role of the Holy Spirit in this is that as we love God, he leads us to love in the world with this fruit on display. Let me tell you a bit more about that. The purpose of the Holy Spirit producing fruit in us is to reveal the reality of who Jesus was and what he looked like to the whole world. Eugene Smith says this. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is the righteousness of God himself reflected in his children because the fruit isn't just for us okay and so while it can nourish our spiritual lives and while we benefit for, from it um the bigger goal as I read this this is what I think okay and this is just my opinion but I think the bigger goal of the fruit of the spirit is to help draw people to the place where they want to taste and see that the Lord is good they want that what we have because when you see love like this on display, it's so different and it's so radical to what the world understands as love. And this love is this word agape. It is self-sacrificial love. It's a kind that is naturally expressed by God, but not so easily expressed by people. This kind of love, when you see it, it's intriguing, isn't it? Do you ever, do you ever remember the first time you saw somebody in church loving somebody like that? It's invitational, isn't it? It affects you, and it's entirely selfless in nature. And it's what the world needs right now, isn't it? Agape love fulfills all of the requirements of the law that Paul was trying to, to, to get rid of, I suppose, if that's the way to put it, in the church in Galatia. And as we begin with this love in our lives, flowing out of our relationship with Jesus, the other fruit then begin to follow. Love opens the way for the rest of the fruit to naturally grow and be expressed. But their foundation is in this agape love that we receive from the Father. And I honestly do believe this with everything that's in me, that it's the antidote to the problems of the world at the moment. Then we have chara, or love, or sorry, joy, which is chara. And it's often translated as cheerfulness or delight. And it's the realization, it's just this, this epiphany that God's favor and his grace are in our life. And, 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 uh, and, and this joy isn't dependent on our circumstances in any way. And so flowing from that agape love of God and, his, and, and, and an increased understanding of his love for us, and we experience joy despite our circumstances. It is love's strength, okay? Joy is love's strength. And this type of joy is a result of never taking our eyes 
of God, no matter what the world throws at us. And then we get to peace. And I'm not even going to try and say that. But it's a, it's a strong sense of wholeness with harm and harmony with God and others. You see, a life of peace is safe and secure. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're not going to have a hard time in life. Okay, that's not what it, what it is. Jesus t- tells his disciples, doesn't he? He says, um, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And in this world, you will have trouble. That's what Jesus says. He doesn't say your life's going to be hunky-dory. Okay, but he says, take heart because I have overcome the world. You see, this type of peace, it grows out of that agape love and it is love security. It is a security in knowing that we are chosen and set apart and the object of affection for the one, from the one who created the world. And so these first three, love, joy, and peace, they help us understand how we express and how we steward the rest of the fruit that Paul then goes on to list, all right? So the next one then is long-suffering or forbearance. And, um, and I think it's macrothumia, we'll go with that. And it's not a word that most of us really commonly use nowadays, right? But it's, the understanding of it is it's self-restraint in the face of provocation, right? So think of Jesus when he was being spat on, all right? Jesus, he had forbearance and long-suffering in those moments, okay? He didn't react. He didn't promptly punish those people. It's like the opposite of anger, and, and it's really strongly associated with mercy. And so this long-suffering or forbearance out of love, okay, it is love's patience that we show other people. Then we get to, to kindness, or sometimes it's translated as gentleness. And, um, and it's an active expression of love towards God and fellow man, okay? It's not where we, get again, just get into our wee holy huddle and do nothing about what's going on out there. But this kind of level of kindness, it's the idea of being adaptable to other people. And so rather than, you know, really harshly requiring um, everybody else to adapt to my needs and what I want and life to revolve around me, kindness, when it's at work in the life of believer in this sense, it's when we are seeking to to become adaptable to the needs of everybody else around us, okay? So really what it means is that you're not self-centered, Okay. Kindness on display like this is, is um, it's employed when people um, <laughs> can use their full strength, but they choose not to. They can use the full weight of their influence, but they choose in moments like that not to. And kindness is one of those universal language that just transcends culture, okay? No matter where you go in the world, if you're kind, other people can see it, can't they? Language doesn't even need to come into that. But this supernatural level of kindness that Paul's talking about, way, this is love's conduct. When we're living in the spread, it's how we conduct ourselves as followers of Jesus, and it completely overlooks its own rights. Then we get to goodness. And goodness means like uprightness of heart, okay, and, and, and uprightness in our life. And it's a word that's actually quite unique to the Bible. I didn't know that until I started to look into this passage. And it's the type of goodness that's seen in our actions. And this word, it really, it's not only to being good, but also to doing good things. It's like a, an active thing. It's like a verb. And, and so an example of this is Jesus cleansing the temple, okay? He went in and he saw that people were taking advantage of the poor and he didn't like it. So he did something good about it. <laughs> he cleared the place, all right? And, uh, and it's when you act on the, on the behalf of other people for the extension of the kingdom of God, 
That's what goodness is. And goodness is love's character on display. It's God's love in us should cause us to want to do something about the injustices that we see out there. That's what goodness is, okay? So long-suffering and kindness and goodness, those three kind of go together as parts of the fruit of the Spirit, which show the world what our character and our conduct is like. And they help us to understand how to relate to other people better. And then we get to faithfulness. And faithfulness is fidelity, loyalty, um, steadfast, reliable. That's what, what faithfulness is. And faithfulness is the part of the fruit of the Spirit that is a character trait that combines dependability and trust. It's kind of summarized in the idea, uh, Nietzsche said this when he said, it's like a long obedience in the same direction. That's kind of what it means, right? It's like, keep going, keep being faithful. And, and when you think of faithfulness, faithfulness like this, you think of Joseph in the Old Testament, whose life was just totally <laughs> plagued by injustices, right? But he remained faithful, and he remained steadfast and loyal to God, and, uh, and his reliability, his faithfulness, resulted in him influencing the whole nation of Egypt. That's faithfulness. And faithfulness is love's confidence, okay? Then we get to meekness. And meekness is this notion of a humble and a gentle attitude that is patiently submissive in every offense. That's hard. Like, that's hard, isn't it? <laughs> While being free of any kind of desire for revenge or retribution. That's even harder. <laughs> it's not weakness, but actually it's the opposite of weakness. It's a picture of like this wild animal that's been tamed. It hasn't lost its strength. It hasn't lost its power, but it's under control. Okay, it's destructive instinct doesn't control it. And as we apply this to us, I kind of feel that, um, that it's, the, it's the notion of being teachable in church, isn't it? It's the notion of, of, of realizing that we haven't got this all figured out. There's always more to learn. We can't have the whole thing sewn up and packaged and that's Christianity and that's that part of our lives. It's an, the ongoing process of being transformed. And meekness is love's humility, right? That's, um, we have so much more to learn. And then we get to self-control. And self-control is in strength or in power. It's, it's um, something that permeates into every area of our life. And actually, lack of self-control also uh, seeps into every area of our lives as well. But the beauty of self-control, derived from a walk in the Spirit, okay? One that's, that is rooted in the walk with the Spirit, not just one that you do because like, you want to lose a bit of weight, the beauty of that kind of self-control is freedom and it's victory. You see, when we're in control of those inner impulses and inner influences, we can handle the life around us differently, right? We don't uh, react off the cuff and uh, out of our emotions, but we have a measured response to things in life. And, uh, and, and it really does take genuine Holy Spirit strength to do that. Um, but this is the victory of love. Self-control is love's victory. And so faithfulness and meekness and self-control, they help us control that, that really inherent sense of self-entitlement and realize that it's about more than just us. And so Paul rounds up this whole list, okay, and he says this, and I think this is mighty, he says, against such things there is no law. When these are at work in our lives, against these there is no law. And when the fruit is evident, we find that we don't need to lean on the law in the same way that the nation of Israel had to do that in the Old Testament. So, for example, the law, don't murder, right? 
if you love someone in the, in the way that the fruit of the Spirit is expressed in their lives, you're not really going to go out and murder somebody, okay? Or if the law, don't envy, okay? If you have um, goodness and kindness at work in your life, you're not really going to covet what other people have because you're going to be satisfied with what you have. So can you see how the fruit kind of um, displaces the law or offsets the law because it is the reality of Jesus in each of us. The law was put in place to like inhibit the spilling and the seeping out of sin, but when we have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, those things are under control. And so as we have unpacked each of the, the fruit, and it's beautiful, we see this picture of God emerge, that this is actually what Jesus was like. And so while we can go to the Gospels and find out how Jesus did life, and we can read right through the whole Bible, and we can see what God's character is actually. If you focus in on Galatians 5, you can actually see what God's character is actually really like. <clears throat> Jesus demonstrated that as we cultivate our relationships with him, he is the one that produces his righteousness in us, which is what the law could never do. Okay, he came to fulfill it. And God in us, the Holy Spirit in us, is world changing if we let it be. And it's really important that you know, right? Okay, we, we can't, so you can try and do a form of these fruit of the Spirit just by trying your best. <laughs> but it's not really what God designed because this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is not the fruit of Bruno McIntyre. This is the fruit of the Spirit that comes out of his work in, in our lives. And N.T. Wright, he says this, he says, those who name the name of Jesus must be seen to be living the life that results from worshiping the true God. Their, only, or their own genuine humanity resulting from worshiping the God whose image, in whose image they are made must be recognizable. The fruit of the Spirit, when we meet it, I love this bit, they are impressive. They are impressive, particularly in this cynical age. If we are to get a hearing to tell the story of Jesus, this is the only way to start. I wonder, this is just my thoughts, and you can come and tell me that I'm totally wrong afterwards if you want, I'll take that. But I wonder if the fruit of the Spirit on display is actually like what Eden would have been like. <laughs> because they were living in the reality of the relationship with God. And I wonder, did they see Love, joy, peace, all of these fruit on display in their lives because they were so close to God, because they were consistent in, in, in showing up to be in a relationship with their maker. So, you know, um, I've told you this before, like really not into gardening, but we have tried to put in a few fruit trees <laughs> because we kind of think they can do their thing. We might get a couple of apples and a few things and, and uh, a couple of plums maybe in a, in a few years. But um, when you think of a tree, right, you have to remember that it's, it's, you know, it doesn't produce fruit really quickly. Okay, it's not an instantaneous thing. It takes time and it takes effort. And the tree has to abide and let its roots go down into the soil. Okay, and, um, and it has to, to do its growing and it has to do its bearing based on what it is getting from the soil. And I think that's a beautiful picture of us abiding in Jesus. Okay, letting our roots go down into him and what we get from him, he produces the fruit in our lives. But do you know what? My wee trees, they don't strive. <laughs> they're, they're tiny. Like, they don't strive to produce things. They just do it because they're, they're getting what they need from the soil. And it's the same thing when it comes to living a life in a spirit. This is not the fruit of our lives. Like I said, this is the fruit of the spirit in us. And, uh, and 
And as I pull it to a close, I just think it's really important this morning that we kind of acknowledge that, that the fruit of the Spirit at work in our lives is the complete undoing. It's the undoing of the effect of self and sin. And when we live in the flesh, we produce these works, especially in the church, right? We produce works, but when we live in the Spirit, we produce transformed attitude, or rather, He produces them in us. And fruit, it it isn't imparted, it's developed in us, okay? Because God gives us a new nature as believers that is rooted completely in his way. So in Romans 8, this was our verse last week as well, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit, they have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So what do we do with all that? (laughs) I believe um, that... um, that it's really useful for us to, to reflect and, um, and to look at what we're doing around how we're inviting the Holy Spirit into our lives. Because walking by the Spirit involves patterning our lives after what Jesus did. Okay, And it's helpful if we continue to invite him into those daily disciplines that we talked about in our last series. Okay, So these were the same practices that Jesus used in his own life to make sure that, that, that he was showing everybody what the Father was like. Okay, And so do you remember we did, um, Johnny, can you flick down to the quadrant there? Do you remember our quadrant? All right. How is your prayer life looking? What's your devotion and your abiding like? It's okay if it hasn't worked out just the way you wanted it to in January. It's fine. But we can make tweaks to it. See what's more realistic for you, okay? We've been talking about this in our life group. Some of the things that we talked about doing in January, they just haven't worked out, and that's all right. <laughs> but we do have an opportunity just to not just brush it to the side and say, well, that didn't work for me, and I'm not going to do anything about it. Let's make some tweaks. What about... Family, what about our relationships with our immediate family? But what about our relationships with the family of God that we are planted in? How are they looking? How are we being intentional about that? What about how we employ God's word as we bring it to the world? How are we with mission? Who do we have in our lives that we can be telling about Jesus? And what about rest? That's, we're really not very good at that one, sure we're not. What is our discipline of Sabbath like? If these things aren't working out that we set out in January, I would encourage you over the next week or two to really look at them again and say, how can I adjust this to make it more doable, but also more enriching in my life? Because we are embodied souls whose hearts, desires, emotions, and thoughts need to be transformed. And and because of that, it's fair to say that, that we need embodied practices that engage our whole person, which is what we get in spiritual practices. So here's Dallas Willard's definition of this. If you go back up one there, Johnny, he says the disciplines are activities of mind and body purposely undertaken to bring our personality and our total being into effective cooperation with divine order. They enable us more and more to live in a power that is, strictly speaking, beyond us, deriving from the spiritual realm itself. So I just, I would love to pray for you guys this morning as, uh, as, as we go on our way, all right? God, what a relief it is <laughs> that the fruit of the Spirit is not something that we can achieve and obtain by striving. That lifts the pressure off us and that allows your your spirit to do what it does best. And I pray this morning, Father, that that we would, would leave this place knowing, God, 
that it's, it's your best for us and that it's what you want for each of us, Father. So would you help us? Would you bring a revelation to our hearts about how we can... Um, how we can embody what it is that you want us to do, how we can abide better in you, how we can get those disciplines of prayer and family and your word and rest better in our lives, God. May we leave here in the victory and in the freedom of knowing, God, that this is what you achieved through your cross and that your Holy Spirit at work in us is what brings these things out. So bless these people as they go. May they have a, a good week with their families and, uh, and, and may they invite you into everything that they do. In Jesus' name, amen.